Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we talk about magic. Not the Gandalf kind or the Witches of Eastwick kind or even the Geralt of Rivia kind. Today, we're talking about the kind of magic that's practiced by masters like Houdini and Darren Brown and Juan Tamarez, and also by magician Joshua Jay, who's the author of the new book, How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. It's such an interesting conversation. Not only do we explore everything in the book's title, we also talk about the difference between surprise and wonder and the devotion and artistry that magicians bring to their craft. Did you just say Geralt of Rivia? <laughs> Close. And yes, I did. <laughs> so Who is glad. Geralt of Rivia? <laughs> so glad you asked. Uh, he is the main character in a Polish fantasy series that was turned into a video game that was turned into a TV series starring Henry Cavill that I am strangely so into. <laughs> So have you heard anybody walking around singing, toss a coin to your witcher? No, I haven't. And I'm stuck on the, like, did you start with the Polish fantasy series? Did you start with the video game? No, no, no. I I started with the TV series. And I do intend to go to the source material. Probably won't do the video game because I don't really do video games. Okay. Toss a coin to your witcher. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And trust me, now that I've mentioned that song, you might hear it. Oh, I can't wait. But getting back to magic that's made by real humans in the real world, I am so excited about this episode and so glad that Joshua Jay agreed to talk to us. Josh is a former world champion in close-up magic. He is a Guinness record holder for card tricks, and he makes frequent appearances on TV shows like Jimmy Fallon and The Late Late Show with James Corden. He even fooled Penn and Teller on Fool Us. He's performed, I know, it's so good. Everyone has to watch all of this. He's performed and lectured all over the world and has authored four books on magic in addition to How Magicians Think. That book is fascinating. It's half history of magic and half what makes an artist. It's not about how all the tricks are done. It's about why magicians want to do those tricks in the first place and why we want to watch them. We started by asking Joshua what makes magic different from other kinds of performing arts. Here's what he said. I think it's probably a lot of things, but the one that I think very few people think about is this one. In every other performing art, people sit in the audience and they enjoy the performance, but they don't affect the performance. But in magic, in really good magic performances, The notion is there that you are affecting the outcome of the show, that people from the audience will make choices that make the show unique. What if I had picked a different card? Or what if she had said that box instead of that box? Or what if I had gone here? There really is this sense that the audience plays a role. In your book, you quote your late friend, the magic scholar Charles Reynolds, who wrote, 
the true magical experience should be more about wonder and less about wondering. What does that mean? Yeah. So, so Charlie Reynolds, I know you guys are New Yorkers. Charlie Reynolds used to live in a beautiful old townhouse in, in the West Village. And he was one of magic's great scholars. And he had all sorts of these little aphorisms that are, are so beautiful. And in that one, what he's talking about is letting go of trying to figure it out. You know, most people think the point of a magic show is to see if you can figure it out. And nothing could really be further from the truth. And as soon as you surrender that and give up in that quest, you open yourself up to all sorts of wonderful new feelings that you can experience in a magic show when you're not just obsessed with this futile attempt to try and figure out tricks. So it becomes more about wonder and less about wondering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's the difference between wonder and surprise? And how is each of those things important in magic? Surprise is a very dangerous thing for those of us who create our own illusions because surprise can be either out of left field or it can feel perfect. In other words, if I produce, you know, a bowling pin and then I produce a banana, you might go, wow, that's really random. Yeah. I don't know how you did it, but <laughs> why a bowling pin? Why a banana? Why in that order? That's a surprise, but it doesn't feel fulfilling. But there's a thing in magic, you know, there's wonderful theories in magic. And one of those theories is called the ham sandwich theory. And I love this. And that theory is if I reach behind your ear, Julie, and I go, look, a ham sandwich, and I produce a ham sandwich, and you're going to look at me and you're going to go, Josh, that's really troublingly weird. Like, why have you just produced a ham sandwich? <laughs> and maybe a little gross. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we don't know. Do you like mayonnaise? Do you want you know, lettuce on it, tomatoes? But the thing is, if you said to me, if we were walking around, hey, Josh, I am so hungry right now. And what I could go for, believe it or not, is a ham sandwich. If at that moment I showed my hands empty and reached behind your ear and produced a ham sandwich, I have now fulfilled a need, right? I have now done something on command that is impossible, but also fitting to the situation. And that's the bullseye for a magician. That's that sweet spot, is trying to find magic that feels needed and necessary and essential to whatever moment you're in. You can spend a lifetime searching for tricks in that moment, in that sweet spot, but it's finding out what people are hungry for and giving them their hand sandwich. What drew you to magic when you were a kid and why do you perform now? What I have observed is that we all kind of get into magic for the same reason. You get into magic because you want to fool your friends. You get into magic because you want to know secrets. You get into magic because you see another magician on stage and it looks glamorous. You get into magic because your ego wants to know how something's done. And probably most of all, if you want to get really deep and psychological, we get into magic as kids because we want to be able to do something that other people can't do. And that's a really big deal. But here's the, the wonderful thing. None of those reasons I describe are particularly altruistic or, or noble reasons. And that's why kids tend to get out of magic. And my observation is they tend to get out of magic right around puberty when other impulses kick in and things become clearer in our eyes of what's important at school or with our friends. But for those of us who stay in magic, we find new reasons to want to be doing it. So it no longer becomes about ego stroking or knowing something other people don't know. It becomes about something deeper and something that is really sweet and fulfilling. Something like 
being able to give people the experience of wonder. Something like being able to work so hard at something and master a secret skill. Something like climbing the mountain because it is there, you know, just doing something difficult because it's difficult. These are great reasons, I think, to stay in magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your book, you describe how your life has been singularly devoted to magic. You say, I have given magic my sole focus at the cost of most of my childhood, my social life, and my family. I've scarcely slept in the same bed for more than two weeks in a row in the last decade. My career makes it nearly impossible to have a romantic relationship, and those I have had ended when I was forced to choose between someone and magic. I miss all the important stuff, birthdays, big games, holidays, weddings. I have many questions about this, <laughs> this yeah, passage of yours. Let's dig in. <laughs> so the first is, why have you devoted your life to magic? Was it even a choice? Yeah. Can you tell that uh, I wrote most of this book on the road? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm picturing you in, you know, in dressing rooms or hotels. Yeah. Late at night. Yeah. yeah. So I, I made the decision to write most of this book on the road and everything that, that you read is certainly true, but it certainly sounds like a more morose light than I'm in now because the pandemic, I haven't toured in a long time and I'm just starting and I'm just loving magic all over again. I was writing this book after doing two shows a night and it was a European tour and then a U.S. tour. So keep that in mind as you read that. But yeah, it's true. And as for your question as to why you push, it's that Huxley quote again, why do you climb the mountain? Because it is there. I can no longer really distinguish why I do magic or what drives me. It has become the way that I see the world. You know, it's that lens that I see everything through. And I know that sounds cliche and overly simple or can't possibly be real, but for any of you guys listening that have your own passions, you you know that's 100% true, and I think you'd be able to relate to it. I mean, when you love something the way that I love magic, when you dedicate your life to it, you never get sick of it. You never get bored of it. You might get sick of the grind. You might get sick of the politics of magic or, or aspects of magic or doing press or, or parts that are difficult, but you never, ever get sick of having a deck of cards riffling between your fingers or you know, walking out on stage and delivering your opening lines. You have to do it. It's what you are here to do. It becomes your purpose. You know, I have very mixed feelings when people say something like, you are just so lucky. Oh, yes, I am. What do you mean? <laughs> you are so lucky to found something that you love to do and to do it every day. And of course, they're right. They're right that I'm lucky. But luck is a weird word choice in the sense that like, you know, it isn't an accident. It isn't just like, I found magic, the end of the story. I've given up a lot to do what I love. But the other side of the question is, what are some of the rewards of devoting your life to magic for you? Yeah, um, well, it's a great question. I, the reward is the work, right? So, yeah. I mean, so many things that that I think about and, and want to say can come off one of two ways. And I just hope that you and the, the readers know that I mean these in, in the most down-to-earth, literal way, not the egotistical way. But becoming an expert in something. And I'm not saying that I'm the world's expert, but you know, you dedicate your life to something, you get very good at it. Expertise is a really beautiful, natural high. I really love watching anybody who's an expert in anything. I love listening to people who really understand films talk about film. 
It's a joy to eat at 11 Madison. I know nothing about cooking and the culinary arts, but to eat at one of the best restaurants in the world is to appreciate true mastery. To know my subject matter so well that I can watch a magician and immediately understand the great decisions they've made and the bad decisions they've made or be able to look at an act of a friend and, and sort of really help them fix something immediately. Like, okay, I'm going to show you how to you know, make that piece so much better. You are actually doing it backwards. You should start with this and then do that and then go here and you'll be perfect. That sort of mastery is really gratifying. And you know what's interesting? To get to that place, you often have to get it in something else. I used to love basketball when I was a little kid. I thought I wanted to be a basketball star. And then I realized that would never happen. (laughs) And I sort of went away from it as I learned my craft and magic. I didn't have time to even be a casual fan. But, you know, it all came pouring back to me. I think I watched this The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that everybody loved in and out of basketball. And I just thought, like, I want to know basketball again. So I studied it, but not like you watch the ball game late at night. I mean, I studied it like really, really carefully. I read up on it and I studied the stats and I learned all the players. The way you experience a basketball game when you understand the plays and the intricacies of the sport is so much more gratifying than, you know, buying the popcorn and sitting in the stands and just watching the ball because you're watching defense, you're watching systems, you're watching the changes coaches make. And I guess that's a long-winded way of me saying that mastery is a really beautiful thing. And it's a really great way to go through life because it teaches you about anything. I keep thinking about Josh saying that some people compliment him by saying how lucky he is to have found something he loves that he can do every day. Kind of like finding magic was a happy accident. But of course, it's not an accident. It is a choice that he makes every day and works at every day and sacrifices for every day. And I think to an extent that's true of anything anybody does really well. But I also think it's especially true about artists. I don't know if you felt this way, but for me, talking with Josh was a lot like talking with Georgina Pascogan. She's a ballerina with the New York City Ballet, and our episode with her is airing in a few weeks. You know, the practice and the sacrifice that Georgina and Josh describe, it's also true of musicians. My concert pianist friends practice, you know, eight, nine hours a day. That is just how hard you have to work in order to be transcendent. And I think luck has much less to do with it. This raises for me the age-old question of how much is talent and how much is hard work, right? You you can have a natural talent, I think, without the passion and the drive to put in those hours and perfect it, and you won't achieve transcendence, mm-hmm. probably. You could also just put in those hours and without some natural talent, not achieve it either, yeah. right? I guarantee you that I don't have the quickness to pull off what Joshua pulls off or the grace to be a dancer like Georgina. And I'm sure there's more than quickness and more than grace in, yeah. <laughs> in what each does, but we'll just start with those elements. Even if I spent all day, every day trying to do what they do. So maybe the luck or the good fortune is to have the combination of passion and drive along with the natural gift. Yeah, I think that's right. Although then there are those people who just sort of luck into it and you sort of hate them for it. So we'll leave those people out of it. Anyway, one of the many things I learned from Josh's book that blew me away was that each individual magic trick can take months to learn and sometimes even 
decades to develop. It is just incredible to me that magicians spend years developing a single trick. We asked Josh to walk us through that process using one of his tricks as an example. And here's what he said. I have a trick that I call t-shirt build. And I did this trick on The Late Show with James Corden. And it's a trick that was featured in my show, Six Impossible Things, that ran for a couple of years here in New York. The start of this trick was going to a concert by myself. I love to go to concerts by myself sometimes. It just helps me think. I take a notebook and it's, it's just a, you know, a nice thing that tends to get my creative juices flowing. And I'm at this concert for uh, Robert Plant, as it was. And the guy next to me is wearing a Soundgarden shirt. But this Soundgarden shirt is a shirt with a piece of tape, duct tape, across the chest that says Soundgarden on it. And because I was alone, if I was with somebody else, I probably wouldn't have done this. I sort of like struck up a conversation with him. And I was like, hey, man, why do you have a piece of duct tape across your shirt? And why does it say Soundgarden? Were you like working with them? Or what was, what's the deal? And he said, no, man, check it out. And he took my hand, he grabbed my wrist, and he ran my hand down his chest. And it was like Trump Loy. It was a printed T-shirt of a piece of duct tape with Soundgarden written on it. He's like, this was just a shirt I got at their show. And I thought, oh, my God, I was just fooled. I thought that was an actual piece of duct tape with, you know, the, the roughed edges and the bubbling up and, and you know, tapes kind of stuck to itself in parts with the words written. And it kind of had that 3D shadowed effect. I was just fooled by that. And I mm -hmm. thought, that's a trick. So how can I put a piece of tape and a message on my T-shirt and have it do something? And that's where the idea started. So now fast forward a couple of years and I start to crystallize an idea in my mind in which we're going to build a shirt for my show. So I can make the joke that, hey, you guys are going to pick your own merch tonight. We're going to build a Joshua J t-shirt. And I take a piece of duct tape and stick it to my plain black t-shirt. And now we generate a number using a spectator's uh, calculator, their own phone on their own calculator. And we come up with a totally random number and we write this number down on this piece of duct tape. The trick is that when that number is turned upside down, it spells out the word impossible. Or as you see it on the James Corden show, if you search it, it's, it spells out his name. I can change Okay, I'm the just message. gonna interrupt and say, I've watched this video. Oh on, yeah. Uh, the, and it's fantastic. Everybody, oh, we'll link to it in you. our show notes. Everybody needs to go watch this. Oh, it's you're it's very remarkable. Kind. Well, thank you. So it turns upside down and um, I borrow a dollar bill and it ends up matching the serial number on a borrowed dollar bill. And I put the dollar bill in my t-shirt pocket, but then the real trick, all of that is just the setup. That's where people think you're going. But the real trick is then that the t-shirt crystallizes. It, it becomes petrified. In other words, the bill in my pocket, the duct tape, the pocket itself, it all is an illusion because it's all printed on the shirt, irremovable. And then of course they can buy it after the show. And now they have a story to tell about the shirt. That process, I'm not kidding you, took two years. And I think we did 256 shows of six impossible things. And truly, we were tweaking things about that trick up until the last show. A trick, of course, never stops being evolved, but truly it takes dozens, if not hundreds of performances to get it to where it's at. Yeah. You said something in your book about being fooled that I found a little bit heartbreaking. You said, I love being fooled, love it. But with every show I perform and every invention I create, my doorway to wonder closes a little more. 
Mm. And I'm wondering, do you lose the joy along with the wonder or do other aspects of performing magic become more rewarding as your doorway to wonder closes? Yeah, no, great, 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 great question. And, and the answer is sort of embedded in the question there is you're exactly right. It's not that it becomes less joyful. It's that the joy shifts. So I do mourn the loss of being fooled more often. And that's not to say I'm not fooled. I mean, I, I'm fooled all the time and I love to be fooled. But the wider your base of knowledge and magic, the more you time you spend in it, frankly, the less you're going to be fooled by other magic tricks. So instead of being fooled, now it's a different kind of aha. It's more of a, oh, that's really smart. Or that person's application of that principle is really great. Or wow, I can't believe he took that old chestnut and turned it into this brand new amazing thing. Yeah. So I, I think we might have time for one more question, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm sure. watching the clock. Would you tell us about Juan Tamarez and what makes him remarkable? Sure. For those who don't know, Juan Tamarez is perhaps, and in many magic scholars' eyes, the greatest living magician. He is famous in his native Spain. He can't walk down the street without people pointing and cheering, and they know him and his work very well. He had television shows for decades. He's older now, uh, in his 70s. Much more importantly and crucially, he is the consummate magic artist. So he has created some of the most important magic of the century. He has innovated in ways that are really important and long lasting, and he's developed theories, magic, philosophy, and written about his own theories and philosophy in books that are going to be studied a century or more from now. So you cannot overstate his impact, and he's still making it. And he's a Picasso-like figure. You know, he has this aura about him and he's mysterious and he has disciples and he has friends and he lets people study with him if he knows them. And I'm very fortunate to be one of those people. So I will go to Cadiz, Spain and stay with him at his home and work with him for a week. We'll work on my material. We'll work on his new material. We'll work on material from other people if they're there. And I have no idea. He doesn't tell me in advance. I have been there when there have been seven and eight people boarding with him. And I have been there when it's just been him and me. And he keeps weird hours. He gets up about 5, 6 p.m. And for the first few hours he's awake, even when you're in his home, you, you kind of don't talk to him because those are his hours to write and to be contemplative just himself. And then eventually he'll make his way onto the back porch where there's these mosquito nets. Anybody who's around, which is often some of the best magicians in the world, they come and sit down at the table and it begins. And it begins. And some nights it can just be talking philosophy of magic or it might be the philosophy of art. He loves art. He loves music. Other nights we might just stick on the same trick, the same two-minute trick for eight, nine hours. And it goes all the way till the morning. And at about 8 a.m., everybody goes to bed and they sleep all day and repeat it the next day. And these are these weird, wonderful characters in magic like Juan Tamarez that, that make magic so exciting to me. Can you imagine spending all night in a scented garden in Spain, practicing magic with the world's greatest living magician in the moonlight? Oh, that's truly magical. Yeah. But I'm bummed. <laughs> <laughs> had to do it. Had to do it at some point. <laughs> You're welcome for waiting this long. <laughs> I think my favorite thing that I learned from Josh is that magic tricks begin with an impossible idea. Magicians start by wondering what if, 
and then they deal with the obstacles later. I just love that. Josh told us he lives across the street from the biggest center for the blind in New York, and talking to some of his neighbors made him wonder if he could create a trick for someone who can't see. Because magic, of course, is a visual medium. But it turned out he could, and he did. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Watching it, I felt like a little kid again, like just, wow, you know, how do they do that? I think that's a gift that magicians like Joshua give us to make us feel that way. I hope you enjoy watching that trick and others, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Joshua on Instagram at Joshua J. Magician and on Twitter at Joshua J. Magic. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.